Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Uh, Good afternoon. I don't normally read talks, but this is important. So I thought I'd write something, compose something, which grew out of a Dimbleby lecture, which I did about a year ago. Um, And I've called it uh, Libraries and Books, The Oxygen of Enlightenment. A few years ago, I was involved in the making of a documentary for BBC Radio 4 on the history of childhood. We called it The Invention of Childhood. And more recently, I've been recording a two-part documentary, Reading Between the Lines, which explores the whole question of how we go about teaching our children to read. In particular, the use of synthetic phonics. Working on both series gave me a powerful sense of how children were taught, are taught, and how childhood was thought of and lived by adults and children alike over the ages, of just how long it has taken and is still taking for the lives of children to emerge from the dark ages of war, poverty, exploitation, and neglect. I would maintain that the closing of libraries prolongs that neglect and is indeed an abuse of the rights of the child. I discovered also how it is only comparatively recently that we have begun to talk of the rights of children. Thomas Paine's Rights of Man was published in 1791. Mary Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Women came out in response in 1792. But it wasn't until the 20th of November 1989, almost two centuries later, that the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child was published. This convention declares that a child should have a right to a name, to a nationality, access to health care, to play and recreation, to survival, to liberty, and to an education. And is not literacy essential to education? And is not the provision and availability of books a cornerstone of literacy? We in Britain have ratified the convention, but do we live by it? How is it that so many children the world over, and in this country too, still never know the joys of childhood, or the benefit of reading. I should like to confine myself to three of these primary rights as laid down in the UN Convention, rights that all children should enjoy. The right, first, to survival, to liberty, and in particular today, the right to education. All of these integral to a child's well-being. It will be a personal, and sometimes an uncomfortable journey. We shall discover that even under our own noses, in our backyard, these rights have been and still are woefully neglected. For the most part, I'm going to use my own experience as a guide. I am no academic. I was a child once myself, difficult to imagine, I know, and I've been a parent a grandparent, a teacher in one way or another for 35 years, and a writer for children. So children and books have been at the center of my world all my life. I know this is a lecture, not a storytelling session, which is a shame because if we're honest about it, most of us prefer a story to a lecture. 
Children and grown-up children listen more intently to stories. They look out of the window less. There aren't any windows, but there we are. Whichever you prefer, you're going to get a little of both. A kind of a story lecture, a weaving of sad stories, happy stories. This will absolutely not be a talk stuffed with statistics. And when you think I digress or go off-piste, please just bear with me. I'll come back. Less is more when it comes to statistics, I find. A few will have to do. Today, 8 million children a year die before the age of five. That's a holocaust of children every year. 12 million live close to salvation. 69 million children never go to school. A billion of the world's children still live in poverty. But let us not imagine for one moment that it is only elsewhere in the world that the rights of children are so conspicuously neglected. 3.5 million children in our own country are still mired in poverty, and some of the most vulnerable have been appallingly treated. Two lines that will echo through this talk from William Blake from Auguries of Innocence. A robin redbreast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. Over 200 years ago, Blake, that great visionary poet, pricked the conscience of a nation to consider the plight of its children. I spoke those two lines to camera a couple of years ago outside the barbed wire fence of a place called Yarlswood in Bedfordshire, an immigration removal center for asylum seekers, including families and children, a kind of holding pen before deportation or whilst final decisions about deportation were being made. Yarlswood was opened in November 2001. Since then, thousands of asylum-seeking families and children had been imprisoned there, sometimes for months. I was with a BBC film crew for the politics show. We wanted to go in, but it was not permitted. I am not surprised, for something deeply shameful to us all was going on inside that place. Until 2008, I'd never heard of Yarlswood. Very few people had. We like to keep quiet about such things. Until I happened to see a play at the Young Vic called Motherland by Natasha Walter, a play later staged at the House of Commons. It was performed by Juliet Stevenson, Harriet Walter, family and friends, and put on deliberately to raise awareness of the plight of these asylum seekers and of the injustice being done to them. The play was largely told through the eyes of the children imprisoned there, their own stories in their own words. I watched the play in disbelief. This was happening in my country, in Britain, where we so value childhood, where supposedly we so cherish children. In the play, we hear the story of Meltem, a 13-year-old girl from Turkey. It is a true story. My name is Meltem. It was 7 o'clock in the morning in August at our home in Doncaster, We've lived there for six years. They banged and banged on the door. As soon as my mum opened the door, they rushed in. There were 12 of them, 12 big men. They took us to the police station. They told us to wait. They said, there is a car coming to take you to the removal centre. The car came, and it was awful. It had a cage. For a minute, I thought to myself, am I an animal? The journey took a long time, and this is where we ended up here in Yarlswood. I tell you, it has no difference from a jail. It has been more than two months I am here so far. For education in here, I get maths for nine-year-olds and jigsaw puzzles. 
No, they don't give you an education here. I don't think you can get educated when you know you're in prison. I saw an officer slapping a little two-year-old baby because he was playing with lights. And I saw a mother crying for her baby because they wouldn't take it to health care, though the baby was vomiting and had a high temperature. The officers were being really nasty, like they are just lowering people down and saying words to make them sadder. At school, I was good at science, maths, and history. I wanted to become a doctor. My teachers, they were really kind. I miss them all so much just being at school and doing normal things with my friends. For a decade or more, we had been locking up asylum-seeking children in this country, thousands of them, and all of them innocent of any crime. But Melton's story doesn't end here. This story, at least, has an ending we might call happy. Melton and her mother were released. And now, after years of protest by a dedicated group of campaigners, yes, protest can work if you work at it, Government has changed its mind. Although Yarlswood itself has not been closed, at least no children are locked up in there anymore. Now at last, we are promised an ending to the imprisonment of all such children in this country. But it has only just happened. We have to ask, and we should ask this again and again, how on earth men and women, many of them, no doubt parents themselves, sat down around the table and thought this was an acceptable idea in the first place. It was done, of course, out of pragmatism and political and financial expediency. The interests of the child quite ignored. Libraries are closed for much the same reasons, by the way. This was no petty case of right or wrong, but a flagrant abuse of the rights of children. A great wrong has, it, in part at least, been righted, thanks to the, to the determination of a few valiant campaigners. Fired up by their example and by the sufferings of the children concerned, I wrote my own story, a fictional story of a young Afghan boy who, along with his mother and a dog called Shadow, escape from Afghanistan and find their way to England. Six years later, the family find themselves waiting for deportation, locked up in Yarl's wood. I called my story Shadow. Writing stories is my way, I suppose, of dealing with the feelings I have about great injustices done to children whenever I come across them. One day, no doubt, we will apologize for Jarl's Wood, just as we did over those unwanted children forcibly expatriated to Australia after the Second World War. Another example of what might be called the bureaucracy of neglect. Not intentionally cruel, maybe, but often devastating in its collateral damage all the same. Another appalling injustice we have visited upon our children and one that inspired me to write my novel Alone on a Wide, Wide Sea. It may seem that I seek out abuses of rights, causes to write about or to espouse. It doesn't happen that way. Rather, they seem to seek me out. And very often, it is children themselves who bring them to my attention, who open my eyes and touch my heart with their stories. I was in Amman, in Jordan, with Claire, my wife, some 12, 13 years ago, sent there by the British Council, and had the opportunity of talking about stories to Jordanian children, about 80% of whom, of course, are Palestinian refugees, many of them still living in camps. At the end of one session, I asked the teenagers I'd been talking to whether they had any questions. To start with, they were not at all forthcoming and needed some encouragement. But once the first found the courage to speak, 
the floodgates opened and I was bombarded with questions. Mixed metaphor, I know, but I like mixed metaphors. Anyway, the question and answer session all became very relaxed and jolly, and then I was taken completely by surprise. A teenage girl who had said nothing up to now got to her feet. Somehow I knew, maybe it was from her body language, I can't remember, that she was going to mean whatever she said. She said, I don't want to ask a question. I want to tell you something. The room went quiet. Everyone was listening. You say you write stories that are always based on what is real and true, something you feel strongly about. I want to tell you something real and true. My family lives here in Jordan, but I do not belong here. I belong in Palestine. It is my home, but I can't live there because it's occupied. I can't even go there. In the West, everyone knows the Israeli side, but no one tells the story of the Palestinians. I want you to tell a story about us. I said, I don't know enough about the lives of Palestinians, nor about the conflict in the Middle East, certainly not enough to write a story about it. But you could try, couldn't you? <laughs> she said. For many years I thought about what she said to me and became more and more concerned about the lives of the people and the children in particular on both sides of the struggle, both sides, in the Middle East. I think it was a documentary program on the television about the walls the Israelis were building on the West Bank and around Gaza that gave me the idea for a story I might write. After a while it became a story I needed to write, had to write. A robin redbreast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. I come from a generation that grew up in the 50s and 60s with another wall that had divided the world and brought us to the brink of war. A wall that, depending on your point of view, kept people out or kept people in. That defended you or caged you, or maybe both. And here was another wall going up. Like the Berlin Wall, at the heart of the most intractable problem in the world, the fault line that threatens to erupt at any time and engulf us all. It's difficult to imagine, but the Cold War had once seemed just as intractable as the conflict in the Middle East does now. Then one day in Berlin, quite suddenly it seemed at the time, people simply decided enough was enough and tore the wall down. It will happen one day in Israel and Palestine. So in that hope and belief, I wrote my story of a Palestinian, of Palestinian and Israeli children living either side of the wall, their lives already scarred by tragedy. I called it The Kites Are Flying, told in part by Max, a journalist visiting the Palestinian side of the wall for the first time. It is the story of Said, a young shepherd boy who has not spoken a word since he witnessed the death of his brother killed by an Israeli soldier while out flying his kites. Said becomes obsessed with the making of kites, and when the wind is right, sends them off over the wall to an Israeli girl in a wheelchair. She'd been injured when her family car was blown up and her mother killed. Each of Said's kites has a message of peace written on it. At the end of the story, Max is about to, to leave Said for the last time. Said is sitting on the hillside, making his next kite with his sheep all around. This is what happens. I was just about organized and ready to film him again when Said sprang to his feet. 
The sheep were bounding away from him, scattering all over the hillside. Then I saw the kites. The sky above the settlement was full of them, dozens of them, all colors and shapes, a kaleidoscope of kites. Like butterflies, they danced and whirled around each other as they rose into the air. I could hear shrieks of joy, all coming from the other side of the wall. I saw the crowd of children gathered there, every one of them flying a kite. And then, one after the other, the kites were released and left to the wind. And on the wind, they flew out over the wall towards us. From behind us now, from Saeed's village, the people came running out as the kites began to land in amongst us and amongst the terrified sheep too. Uncle Yasser picked up one of them. You see what they wrote? Shalom, he said. They wrote, Shalom, can you believe that? All around me, Saeed's family and many of the other villagers, mothers and fathers, grandmothers and grandfathers, began to clap hesitantly at first. But I noticed then that it was only the children who were whooping and whistling and laughing. The hillside rang with their jubilation, with their exultation. It seemed to me like a glorious symphony of hope. Sentimental claptrap, I hear you thinking. Maybe. Or simply a hope that a new generation will one day rise above the prejudice and suspicion, hurt and hatred, as we have done in Europe, actually, over the last half century or so, as they have done in South Africa and in Ireland and most recently the Arab Spring in Egypt, indeed all over the Middle East. A process of reconciliation, yes, that's still ongoing. Not complete, is it ever complete. It is the children of today, yesterday and tomorrow, who will do it all also in Israel and Palestine. In the end, they will do it in Syria too given half a chance. During the last major Israeli incursion into Gaza two years ago, it is a fact that 347 children were killed. And yes, I know, Hamas rockets had been landing in Israel for a very long time, and that Israeli children have been dying there too. And I know it is absolutely the right of every nation to defend itself. So most certainly the Israelis have their reasons. I'm sure that most of them believe, as we all do, that a child's life in particular is precious. Any child's life. Yet, 347 Palestinian children died. Where in all this is a child's right to survival? And then sometime, after I published my kite story, I was asked by Save the Children to become an ambassador for them, to go to the Middle East and see the work they are doing in Israel and Gaza, and to find out whether there is indeed cause for hope. That's why I went there in November 2010. I wanted to hear the children's stories on both sides of the wall, to tell my own stories, to make kites, and maybe even fly them if we could. I spent two days in Israel. I visited, visited Nevi Shalom, Wakat HaSalam, a co cooperative village school, bilingual, binational, the first such school in the country. Here, Arab and Jewish children play together and learn together. I wanted to know what they thought, how they felt about one another. We made kites and we flew them. And on the kites they had written, without any prompting from me, their own messages of peace. Next, to Tel Aviv, to a meeting organized by Windows for Peace, a forum where Israeli and Palestinian teenagers can come together to try to reach some understanding of the point of view of the other side, however difficult that might be. 
There was obvious resentment and hurt, but no anger, no bitterness. The very fact that these young people were there together and talking seemed to me to be hopeful. I learned from them that both communities felt hemmed in, caged in. The Israelis by the states that surround them and threaten their very existence, and the Palestinians by the walls the Israelis have built, and by the takeover of their land, the building of settlements. With the best will in the world, I could see it would be a long time before Israeli and Palestinian kids would be flying kites over these walls. It would take time, they said. Maybe their grandchildren would see peace. No, said one of them. I think it will be my grandchildren's grandchildren before they fly kites. But they will do it. There will be peace one day. But then came my two days in Gaza. Just getting in was a nightmare. Gaza itself, as you probably know, is a narrow strip of land only eight kilometers wide in places and barely 20 kilometers in length. I knew the dimensions before I went in, but until you see the place for yourself, you can't imagine it. The land and its people are under siege, caged, with wall on three sides and blockaded by warships out at sea. Even if you're with Save the Children, I discovered you might not get in. To my dismay, my companion from Save the Children, Kate Redman, was turned back by Israeli border guards. No reason was given. We're all used to being processed at airports and frontiers to some degree, but this was entirely different. What happened next at the Gaza crossing seemed designed to isolate and maybe even to humiliate. There were rigorous questions about my intentions in Gaza. My bags rummaged through, and then at last, I was allowed through into a 100-meter-long steel tunnel. It was like a set from Doctor Who. I was alone, except for the surveillance cameras watching me. Then I was out into a walkway, about two kilometers long, completely caged in with a kind of no-man's land, a blasted wilderness of rubble and ruin stretching out as far as the eye could see on either side of me. Halfway down, I heard the sound of a shot being fired from a watchtower high on the wall, now behind me. It sounded <laughs> to a country boy like me as if someone was shooting rabbits. All around, young Palestinian boys were racing around on their donkeys and carts, whooping and shrieking. I had no idea what they were doing at the time. I was in another world. I didn't know who was doing the shooting. In this other world, I went the next day to visit a hospital for malnourished babies, and then on to a project for blind children, both funded by Save the Children. These were children much like those at Yarlswood, walled in, imprisoned, caged. A robin redbreast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. I went to talk to children in a school in Gaza City, made kites again, flew them, but sadly not over any wall. I discovered no one is allowed within 300 meters of the wall that surrounds Gaza. But we made kites all the same. Some of them wrote on their kites, rights and peace. Hamas, who controls what can and cannot happen in Gaza, would not allow boys and girls to fly their kites together in public on the beach, I was told, so we went to the park, Le Jardin de Paris with a high wall all around, and we flew them there. This was the only green space I saw in Gaza City. I have to tell you, they have the saddest zoo in the world there. They had a zebra once, and it died. So now they have a donkey, painted with black and white stripes. The main attraction these days. Sad. Here in the Jardin de Paris, I flew kites with the children of Gaza. There was more laughter than wind, but that was fine. And afterwards, I was invited to a family house of one of the kids I had met, and we talked, and we drank tea, and I read them a story. They told me their story. 
of the day the Israelis attacked them, when the white phosphorus shells came down on them and the roof of their house fell in. There were burn marks and holes all over the carpet. A day or so later, on my way out of Gaza, I found myself waiting at the Palestinian Authority barrier. This is in the middle of no man's land, between the Hamas-controlled checkpoint on the Gaza side and the Israeli wall. Israelis and Hamas don't talk to one another, so that's why you need the Palestinian Authority in between to process passports. The border had been closed when I got there. Only an hour before, it seems, two boys had been shot close to the wall. Around me, I saw those youngsters again, hundreds of them out with their donkeys and carts, collecting rubble to be recycled, I learnt, for building blocks in Gaza City. No new building materials were allowed in. Earlier that morning, before I got there, it seems, some of the scavengers had ventured too close to the wall and had been fired at and wounded. I waited in the heat for long hours. With me were dozens of the sick and the frail from Gaza City, young babies, the elderly in wheelchairs accompanied by relatives, many of them trying to get to hospital across the border through the wall. All around me was this wasteland of rubble, once an industrial complex constructed with money from the EU for the people of Gaza, but which had since been reduced by bombing and shell fire and was now all desolation and ruin. I stood in amongst these ruins watching the kids at work coming and going with their donkey carts. They didn't seem worried. So I wasn't worried. I just wanted to get out of this place. I heard the shots, then the screaming, saw the kids running to help their wounded friends. Now I really was outside the comfort zone of fiction. A doctor from Médecins Sans Frontières told me that the shots were fired not by snipers, but from the watchtowers on the wall, and that these scavengers were routinely targeted, remotely, electronically, from Tel Aviv, which was over 25 kilometers away. Spot and strike, the Israelis call it. It was like a video game, a virtual shooting. Only it wasn't. There was blood. His trousers were soaked in it. The bullets were real. I saw the boy close too, saw his agony as the cart rushed by me. Many like him, the doctor told me, ended up maimed for life. Here was a child, caged and under siege being deliberately targeted, his right to survival, the most basic of all children's rights, being utterly ignored. UNICEF says that 26 children were shot like this in 2010. The boy I saw was called Shamek, I discovered. He lives in a house with 15 family members and was out there earning what money he could in the only way he knew how. When I think about it, it isn't just the shock and the horror of that one terrible moment that I remember. What will live with me as well are the voices of the children I met in a library in Gaza City, the stories they told me, the blind boy who said his greatest wish was to worship at the mosque in Jerusalem, and the girl in the same group who told me that it wasn't the Israeli children that she hated, but the soldiers. She wanted to be friends with Israeli children. Her greatest wish? Freedom, she said, and peace. Those 49 children massacred last Friday in Syria wanted the same. Life was their right, as well as freedom and peace. I'm sure it's our wish, too, to set our children free, all of them, wherever they are, free to enjoy their childhood, to live in peace and security, free from fear and poverty, disease and ignorance. 
As I've said, under the UN Convention on the Rights of Children, children don't simply have a right to survival and liberty, they have this right to education, and surely to the best education we can give them. Once we have protected children and ensured their survival from starvation and disease and war, the most important right we owe them is education, a freedom from ignorance. Ignorance is simply a cage, another kind of a cage. A robin redbreast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. Although in this country we are certainly better off in terms of the ravages of war and famine, we have no reason at all to be complacent. When it comes to education, we need to ask ourselves the question, are we doing the best for our children here at home? The answer is, I'm afraid that we are not that far too many of our children are failing, which means that we are failing our children. We are responsible, not just government and teachers, who are blamed constantly, but all of us. And what is it that banishes ignorance? Knowledge and understanding. And where does a child learn knowledge and understanding? From good homes, good schools, yes, and good libraries. Close down a library and you cut children off from the oxygen of enlightenment. In so doing them, doing that, you deny them a fundamental right, the right to a good education. Yet, we are in the process right now of closing down some 600 public libraries. 600 in the land of Shakespeare, Milton, Dickens, Lewis Carroll, Tolkien, Dahl and Pullman, we are slashing and burning a child's right to education, to culture, to literature. How shameful is that? A few nights ago, in the dead of night, police and officials came to Kensal Green Library. It was a book raid. Not a drugs raid, a book raid. The library was emptied of its books. And the plaque commemorating its opening, 112 years ago, by Mark Twain, was removed. Like thieves in the night they came. How shameful is that? The playwright Michael Frayn condemned the move. They took the books out, the plaque down. So the library is now an unlibrary in the way that people became unpersons in the darkest days of the Soviet Union. I hope they took the titles off the book as well. Removing unbooks from an unlibrary, who could possibly object? The biographer, Sir Michael Holroyd, said, the wanton destruction of the Kensal Rise Library, its books removed, its history erased, is a gross act of philistinism, which will bring lasting shame to all involved. We are involved. Time for another story. It's one that I came across in Russia when I visited there some time ago. There was an extraordinary happening to which I was invited. This is the true bit of the story, so listen. It was a gathering of 400 chosen librarians from all over Russia. On my first evening in Moscow, I found myself, this is true, the first evening, I found myself in the Kremlin, a glittering palace of gold and white, buzzing with people talking about books, soldiers in attendance as waiters and an orchestra playing. It was a great celebratory evening, the kind of glitz you would never find at a conference for librarians in England, more's the pity. In fact, it was a celebration of librarians, the unsung heroes of the book world, of the value of the work they do in bringing books to children and children to books. So this was dear to my heart. On the last night of this conference, there was a prize giving. 
It was a little bit confusing because they would speak in Russian, which was most unfair. However, right at the end of an evening that had gone on for far too long, as all prize givings do, the last prize winner was announced. As he stood up, a rather diminutive little man in an ill-fitting suit, 400 librarians rose to their feet and began huzzahing like Russian troops at Borodino. I turned to my mind and I asked her, what was so special about him? Ah, she said, he is the most famous librarian in all of Russia. He lives in a town a long way away. One day, his library caught fire. With no thought for his own safety, he rushed into the building and began to carry out arms full of books. Inspired by his courage and determination, the townspeople followed suit so that before the building burnt to the ground, they had saved about three quarters of the books in the library, thousands of them. Isn't that good, she said. Yes, I said. <laughs> and the story doesn't end there, she said. He told the townspeople to take the books home and look after them, as many as they could. And when the library was rebuilt, and he was sure it would be, then they could bring them all back, and that is exactly what happened. So with tears in my eyes, I hazard along with the rest of them. As I was huzzahing away, I thought to myself, you have to tell this story. Because libraries matter, because people who work in them matter, because the children who discover reading in them matter. Free access to books and the encouragement of the habit of reading, these two things are the first and most necessary steps in education. That librarian knew it. Librarians and teachers and parents all over the country know it. It is our children's right. It is also our best hope and their best hope for the future. So I came home and I wrote my own library story. There are not many of them about. <laughs> it's called I Believe in Unicorns, and I don't care if you've read it already, just go to sleep quietly. I shall finish by reading it to you. You'll find it in any good library, <laughs> if that library is still open. Mop, mop. And a glass of water. I believe in unicorns. My name is Thomas Porich. I was seven years old when I first met the unicorn lady. I believed in unicorns then, and because of her, I still believe in unicorns. My little town, hidden deep in its own valley, was an ordinary place. I know that now, but when I was seven, it was a place of magic and wonder to me. It was my place, my home. I fished the stream below the church, tobogganed the slopes in winter, swam the lake in summer. On Sundays, my mother and father would take me on walks, and I'd roll down the hills over and over and end up lying there on my back, giddy with joy, the world spinning around me. I never did like school, though. It wasn't the school's fault, nor the teacher's. I just wanted to be outside all the time. I longed to be running free up in the hills, and as soon as school was over, it was back home with some bread and honey and then out to play. But one afternoon, my mother had other ideas. She had to do some shopping in town, she said, and wanted me to go with her. I hate shopping, I told her. I know that, dear, she said. That's why I'm taking you to the library. It'll be interesting, something different. You can listen to stories for an hour or so. It'll be good for you. There's a new librarian lady, and she tells stories after school to any children who want to come and listen. Everyone says she's wonderful, but I don't want to listen. I protested. My mother simply ignored all my pleas, took me firmly by the hand, and led me 
to the town square. She walked me up the steps into the library. Be good, she said, and she was gone. I could see there was an excited huddle of children gathering in one corner. I was just about to walk out in disgust when I noticed they were all jostling each other as if they were desperate to get a better look at something. So I went a little closer. Suddenly they were all sitting down and hushed, and there, in the corner, I saw a unicorn. He was lying absolutely still, his feet tucked neatly under him. Oh, I could see now that he was made of carved wood and painted white, but he was so lifelike that if he'd stood up and trotted off, I wouldn't have been the least surprised. Beside the unicorn, and just as motionless, stood a lady with a smiling face, a bright flowery scarf around her shoulders. When her eyes found mine, her smile beckoned me to join her. Moments later, I found myself sitting on the floor, watching and waiting. When she sat down slowly on the unicorn, I could feel expectation all around me. The unicorn story, cried a little girl. Tell us the unicorn story, please, miss. The lady talked so softly that I had to lean forward to hear her, but I wanted to hear her. Everyone did because every word she spoke was meant and felt and sounded true. The story was about the last two magic unicorns alive on Earth who had arrived just too late to get on Noah's Ark with all the other animals. So they were left, stranded on a mountaintop in the driving rain, watching the Ark sail away over the great flood into the distance. The waters rose and rose around them until their hooves were covered. They swam and they swam. They swam for so long, they swam so far, that in the end, they turned into whales. This way, they could swim more easily and they could dive down to the bottom of the sea. But they never lost their magical powers and they kept their wonderful horns, which is why there are to this day, children, whales with unicorns' horns. And they are called narwhals. And sometimes, when they've had enough of the sea and want to see children like you again, they swim up onto dry land, find their legs, and become unicorns again. Magical unicorns. After she had finished, no one spoke. It was as if we were all waking up from some dream we didn't want to leave. The hour flew by. On the way home, my mother asked me, What was it like, dear? All right, I suppose. I <laughs> I told her, but at school the next day, I told all my friends what it was really like about the unicorn lady. Everyone called her that. And her amazing stories and the fantastic magical storytelling power of the unicorn. They came along with me to the library that afternoon. And day after day, as the word spread, the little group in the corner grew until there was a whole crowd of us. One afternoon, the unicorn lady took out from her bag a rather old and damaged-looking book, charred at the edges. It was, she told us, her very own copy of... The Little Match Girl by Hans Christian Andersen. Has it been burnt, miss? I asked her. This is the most precious book I have, Thomas, she said. I shall tell you why. When I was very little, I lived in another country. There were wicked people in my town who were frightened of the magic of stories and the power of books because stories make you dream and think. And books make you want to ask questions. And they didn't want that. I was there with my father when they came to the library and took out the books. Then they burnt them. I was watching with my father. 
when suddenly he ran forward and plucked a book out of the fire. The soldiers beat him with sticks, but he held onto the book and wouldn't let it go. It was this book, Thomas. It's my favourite book in all the world. Would, would you like me to read it to you? And so she did. I've never forgotten that story. And then, one summer morning early, war came to our village and shattered our lives. I remember the moment I first saw the planes. I was outside. My mother had sent me out to open up the hens and feed them. And that was when the bombs began to fall. Far away at first, then closer, closer. We were all running then, running up into the woods. We could hardly see the town anymore for the smoke. We waited until we were sure the bombers had all gone, then ran back home. We were luckier than many. Our house had not been damaged. It was the centre of our town that had been the hardest hit. As I came into the square, I saw the library in flames. The unicorn lady was coming down the steps, struggling to carry the unicorn, staggering under her, its weight. I ran up the steps to help her. Look after the unicorn, Thomas, she said. She was coughing and spluttering. The, the books, she gasped. The books. And she ran back into the library and came out again a short while later, her arms piled high with books. Everyone ran to help. And that was when the great book rescue began. We children formed a chain across the square from the library to the cafe opposite. Books were passed from hand to hand, stacked up on the floor of the cafe and on the pavement outside. The rescue went on until the fire was burning so strongly that the fire brigade wouldn't let us inside anymore. The unicorn lady came out last of all and sat down on the foot of the steps on the unicorn. And we gathered all round her as if waiting for a story. We did it, children, she said. We saved all we could, didn't we? Do not worry. We shall build up our library again. Everyone can take home as many books as they can and care for them. Then in a year or two, when we have our new library built, we'll carry the magic unicorn back inside and tell our stories again. And so it happened just as the unicorn lady said it would. Every family in the town took a few books home, in wheelbarrows, some of them, and when the new library opened, we all brought our books back. The unicorn lady and I carried the unicorn back up the steps that day with the whole town cheering us on, the flags flying and the band playing. And now, all these years later, we have peace in our valley. The unicorn lady is still the town librarian. And the children still come to hear her tell her magical stories. So me, I'm now a writer a weaver of tales, and if from time to time I lose the thread of my story, all I have to do is to go and sit on the magic unicorn and my story flows again. So, believe me, I believe in unicorns. I believe in them absolutely. Um, it says here, there's this horrible machine. I've never seen this machine before at Hay. It's a thing which is now saying 944, 9.43, 9.4. We've got 9 minutes, 42 seconds. I mean, what is this? I'm going to put my hat over it. I can't bear watching it. Got, could you take your coat off for me, please? Take your coat off. No, 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 do it, do it, do it. Come, 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 bring it here. I'll let you know. Fine. Anyway, 
It's, it's question time. We've got, I know, look at all these lovely people with microphones. Um, so if you've got any questions to ask, hang on, I've got to put on my glasses because I can't hear anything. Hang on. <laughs> right, glasses on, questions. Yes, the first one there, I think. Um, hi, I'm Bryony. Um, Hello, Bryony. I'm Michael. Nice to see you. <laughs> nice to see you too. Um, what do you think is the importance of having a real library and real like hardback books instead of iBooks and things we're getting on technology nowadays? Well, trust you to drop me in it right at the beginning. <laughs> Thank you, Brownie. Sweet of you. Um, <laughs> the truth is, with modern technology, is that we have to make the best of it. You, it it's, it's like the tide coming in. You really cannot do the Canute thing and say, go away, it's a bit inconvenient. The truth is there are going to be these e-books, i-books, there are going to be apps. And I'm telling you here now, there are going to go on being books. That ain't going to stop. I was told when I was little by my father, stepfather actually, not to walk, watch television because no one would ever read books again if you did. It seemed like I was responsible for the entire reading public of the whole world. <laughs> but the principle somehow, that because stories are told differently, in a different form, that the way of putting it in books. I mean, think how long it's gone on for and how many revolutions of technology it's come, it's come through. When was Caxton? 15th century, wasn't it? You'd shout at me if I'm wrong. You're all hey people. You should know these things. It was 14-something, wasn't it? Fine, thank you. This is a very long time ago, and it's gone on and on and on and on now. You know, we went from hardbacks, we went to paperbacks. and When paperbacks came out, it said, oh, that's the end of hardbacks. That's it, that's it. Well, it wasn't. All right, and it won't be this time. So I think you can quite confidently come back to hay in 25 years' time when I'll be 122, <laughs> and my latest hardback will have come out. <laughs> Don't worry about it, Brownie. Hi. Um, my favourite one of your book is Born to Run. How did you get the inspiration for that? Um... My wife, uh, Claire, who's here today, likes um, thin dogs. This is because she does not have a thin husband. <laughs> You've got to get your kicks from something. And she likes really thin, fast dogs. And she had this wonderful, wonderful lurcher. Not a greyhound, but a lurcher, which she adored. And I began to see why she loved it so much. Uh, when they run, it is utterly extraordinary how they flow over the earth. Their feet don't seem to... And they're beautiful, truly beautiful. When they stand still, they're ugly as sin. Their, their tails go between their legs and they shake. And they always shake at the people, and people like me, who have never beaten them up. And they always look adoringly at the one person in this world they love, who, of course, is my wife. Which I wasn't all that pleased with all the time, because it was, they were so together across the kitchen. She'd be simply looking adoringly. And I noticed my wife looking back adoringly. And what was I? You know, where was I? Anyway, I love them when they move, but not when they're sitting in baskets. And then I read a horrible thing in a newspaper, which, unlike some of the things you read in newspapers, with the exception of Daily Telegraph, of course, um, was, 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 this is true. There was a horrible man who had, over a period of years, been doing a terrible trade with a greyhound racing fraternity. As you know with these dogs, they race them. And... Some of them, of course, are very fast. But then some of them get injured and can't race anymore. 
and some of them never get fast enough in the first place. And what he devised was a cunning plan. I mean, what should happen, as you know, when you've got a dog that you cannot keep anymore for whatever reason or other, there are homes that you can take them to where other people might come in and find homes for them. And if that fails, there are vets who will put them down humanely. They found a man who would shoot them for about five quid a time and bury them in a field. And the police, I think, came across this field where there were 15,000 dead greyhounds buried. And then I'm thinking, well, that's just a horror. Write a book about it. That's why I did. I'm glad you liked the book. It was all right, was it? How many times did you read it? Twice? Not enough. Read again. <laughs> um, go up the back, otherwise people will get cross. Um, and when hay gets cross, it's not nice. Uh, it, no, there's no one up there. No one's interested. Okay, fine. Um, well, there's one, uh, you'll do. Cause speak without a microphone, because I can hear you. Yeah. I write boy books. <laughs> Explain yourself. <laughs> Have you read a book of mine called The Wreck of the Zanzibar? No. Have you read a book of mine called Why the Whales Came? No. no. <laughs> That's just to start with. I've written lots of books about girls, so don't, don't <laughs> accuse me of such a thing. <laughs> What's your name? Grace Walters. Grace? Yes. Read The Wreck of the Zanzibar because the girl in it is called Grace, for goodness sake! <laughs> have, you, have, have, you, have you a parent here? Yes. Which one? My mum. Well, well, she should know better than to bring you along. <laughs> I think that's an appalling thing to say. I've written, I've written, I want to challenge you. I've written 127 books. Read them all, and I think you will find it's true that boys win out a little bit. But there is a good reason for it. Do you know what it is? No. Look at me! <laughs> it is difficult to believe, but I was a boy once! <laughs> and it's seriously difficult for a man to write about being a girl. It really is! You've got to have this, you've got to have this imagination stuff. I don't believe in all that rubbish. No. <laughs> No, I do try, but thank you very much for that. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, stand up. Where, where did you get the inspiration for War Horse, and how does it feel with it being turned into a film? Uh, well, why don't we... Yeah, we'll deal with the inspiration first, really. Um, it's really difficult to know whether any writer, when inspiration begins, I think probably it begins when you're really, really young. I grew up just after the Second World War. So the first world I saw around me was a, a world which had been very broken, the people included, by six years of a terrible trauma of war. So as a seven-year-old boy, eight-year-old boy, this was my first impression of the world. Bomb buildings, which I played in, and adults devastated by what they lived through. So I think there settled on me a kind of a sadness about the whole inevitability, it seemed to me, of men going to war with men. And every time you looked on the television and you turned on the radio, there seemed to be another cult conflict building up. So I think I became very connected to that whole situation. Also, I had an uncle, like many people sitting in this room. I had a relation who died in that war, who was a photograph on a mantelpiece. And I never knew him. He was 21 when he died. Never became a father. Never became a grandfather. Therefore, as a kid, you know it's serious. 
You know the devastation it causes, you know the grief it causes. And then you see it going on and on and on. I think then, all those years later, I was about 30-something, and I met this old man in the pub in my village. And he was the first person I'd ever spoken to who had been to the First World War as a soldier. I'd read lots of books about the First World War. I'd read lots of extraordinary poetry by people like Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon, Edward Thomas. Wonderful and extraordinary poetry. But here I was sitting across from a man who'd been there, age 17. And I said to him, we just started a conversation. I knew he, there were three men in the village who'd been to that war. This is way back in the 1980 now. And I said to him, um, what regiment were you in? He said, I was in the Devon Yeomanry. I was there with Orses. So I said, what do you mean, Orses? He said, well, I was in cavalry. Cavalry. And they just started talking. I didn't have to ask any subsidiary questions. He just talked. And then he told me something which touched my heart, moved me to tears, which was that he said that his best friend was the horse that he used to ride and that he used to feed every night. And he'd stand there in the horse lines at night and he'd tell that horse what you only tell to your very best friend. That is what troubles you most deeply. And what troubled him most deeply at the time was fear, the loss of someone, some friend, two or three weeks before or something. He's longing for home, for this horrible thing to be over. You couldn't talk to your friends about that because they were going through the same stuff. And he said, I whispered into this horse's ear, and then he said, and I'm telling you, that horse listened. And I thought to myself at first, you know, maybe a bit of a sentimental old fool, but he wasn't. I spoke to his wife afterwards who said he had never, ever spoken to anyone about his wartime experiences, not even her. I think I was this stranger on a train. It was like that. And you feel you can unburden yourself, and he'd done that. And I thought it was a real privilege to, to listen to someone who'd done that. And there's something, Alan Bennett, if you haven't seen his plays yet, you will do when you're older. He's the most wonderful writer, wonderful writer, still writing great plays. He wrote a film called The Madness of King George. You may have seen that. If not, see it, see it, see it. He's an amazing, amazing writer. And he said once that the only reason we're here on this earth well, it was, it was a teacher in his play who said it. The only reason we're here is to pass it on. That's it. You're here to pass it on. So if you have a love of reading as a teacher, you pass it on. If you're a librarian, you pass on your love of books. This man was passing on to me his story. So I was holding it in the palm of my hand, and I thought you've got to do something with this if you can. So I decided to tell the story of that horse through the horse's eyes because I didn't want it to be a British story or a French story, or a German story. I wanted it somehow to be the story of the universal suffering in that war. And I felt this was a, an opportunity to, I suppose, imagine myself 17 and going through the same, the same time in the same world. I wrote it, my wife always thought it was my best book, which is deeply irritating, <laughs> because I've written about 80 books since, and none of them apparently is anything like as good as this one. Can I offer you some advice? You look like a very sensible, intelligent person. I'm going to offer you some serious advice now. When you eventually decide you are going to pair up with someone, you know what I mean, get married or whatever, be careful. <laughs> Choose a partner who flatters you. <laughs> who will say, when, she, when he reads or she reads the next book you wrote, you've just written, that is just the most wonderful thing I've ever... <laughs> not a wife who says, well, it's quite good, but it's not as good as a horse. And you know, the really awful thing to do is never marry someone who's right. <laughs> because all these years later, a certain man called Spielberg 
thought it was quite a decent story too. And then, as you just said, he made, what do I think of that film? What do I think of the play? I think it's just this magical thing. It happens very rarely to writers that someone picks up your story and turns it into something that's very special for other people, extends it, extends particularly, I have to say, the audience of it. Um, that's what's been wonderful. This book never, never sold more than about 1,000 or 2,000 copies a year before the National Theatre made a play of it and before Mr. Spielberg made a film of it. I won't tell you how many copies it sells now because you'll be instantly jealous. <laughs> Thank you for your question. You should. Do, do, you want, do you want to know what they, they put here? He says, get off. Bye-bye. <laughs>